Come on in here. It's time for the evening relaxation. It's like a slippery, delightful slide in which you slide into a good night's sleep. Yep, I am that uninteresting tonight. You'll be drifting off to sleep. So good. I have to show you this scene over here. Hold on. View. That's Boo the cat standing behind my circle light. Hey, Boo. (laughs) She knows we're watching her. All right. For those of you who are... That was the least of least useful thing that ever happened. All right, let's talk about some things that happened. First of all, let me check in. Can I get a fact check? How long has it been since we saw signs of life from Joe Biden? Can somebody give me a read on that? Because I don't think he was around today, right? And is that three days in a row? Can somebody give me a fact check on that? Has anybody seen Biden on video, or even, I don't know, a phone call, uh, in the last three days. Because if not, I think it's already the end of the road. That would be, that would be my guess. If it's true that it's been three days without seeing him, then he's already decided, or he's in the process of deciding to get out of the race. Um, Thursday, somebody says, the last time we saw him. Huh. All right, well, I'll, uh, I'll keep looking at your comments in case somebody saw something. Um, here's something I've been trying to figure out. Does all of this business with the coronavirus... Uh, okay, most people say three days, yeah. Does the business with the coronavirus make it more likely or less likely that we'll have a Green New Deal? Do you think it'll be... Uh, more likely or less likely? I think uh, AOC had a tweet today that was celebrating the collapse of oil prices. Um, and it was, a, let's say it was an inelegant tweet that I believe she got rid of it. But uh, I'm trying to figure out what happens to the Green New Deal if all the demand for oil goes away, the, you know, there's no commuting. Is it possible that the coronavirus solved climate change? That's not impossible, right? Because I don't know if you've uh, you know, looked down at the streets, if you've left your house or anything, but there's not much traffic happening right now. And you know what? All the traffic that is happening is essential. And here's a big question I'm wondering. I'm wondering if people will just decide that they didn't need all the stuff they had before. And here's the theory behind that. Have you ever heard the theory of baseline happiness? It's the idea that you're sort of set in how happy you can be, even if conditions in your life get really good, you don't get much happier. And if things are really bad, yeah, you do get, you get sad if things are really bad, but it doesn't last that long. You know, a year later or whatever, after, let's say, a death in the family or something, you tend to drift back to whatever happiness level 
is your baseline. And we all have a different baseline. So I'm wondering if people are discovering that they've been in lockdown long enough that even though nobody would choose it, probably nobody would choose it except introverts. <laughs> it's pretty good times for introverts. I have, to, I have to admit, being an introvert, I, I, I'm, I'm getting through this a lot better than most of you. Um, but I'm wondering if people will realize that their happiness level didn't change as much as they assumed it would. Because if I said to you, I'm going to take away all of your freedoms and you'll have to just stay in the house and you know, you'll have to worry about everything, you'd say to yourself, well, there's no way I'm going to be as happy. And if I, had, and if I asked you, you'd probably say you're less happy because you have more stress and uncertainty and those things are real. But I'll bet you there's way less of a change than anybody would have predicted. Um, I'll, I'll bet that a lot of people are just getting through it just fine. You know, now, the people who are literally worrying about eating are not getting through it fine. But I'll bet you a lot of people are. Um, <clears throat> I would like to give a shout-out to the task force for satisfying my uh, need for good explanations of where we are on test kits. Now, as you know, I've I've just been railing and railing about the task force not giving us useful information because it's out of context. They they were just giving us random numbers and stuff. Uh, 10,000 ventilators, 15,000 masks, and we couldn't tell, is that enough? Is that too much? And then we ended up with triple the number of ventilators, partly because the projections were, were overcooked, but partly, I think, also because we didn't have good visibility of who could do what and how fast and what we would need and all that. But if I, if I had to give a grade to the administration for ventilators, let's say, let's say we're just separating the report card and we say, you know, ventilators... I think I'd give them an A-plus for ventilators because given that the requirements of the government were pretty much, if you know, in my opinion, the requirements were at all costs, don't let anybody die because they didn't have a ventilator. And if that means making too many of them, I think that was the choice that we made. So the fact that we made too many and we have to give it away, I, I, think, I think you just have to say that's a home run because they started making them in the context of thinking they might actually need them. And if we have too many, well, that's good news. So I'd give them an A-plus on ventilators. Actually, very impressive. Um, it also looks like we're not going to run out of anything else, as far as I can tell. Um, so that looks pretty good, too. Looks like we won't run out of anything. And But I, I was always un, unhappy with not knowing it as it happened. Now... The, the testing facilities are the other big wild card. And I felt that until today, we were not getting any information that was useful in, the, in terms of the public saying, oh, it looks like we'll get out of this in a month or a week or whatever. It seemed like we needed to know where we were on testing because that was the base of it all. But the task force did a great job today, and they brought out uh, they brought a, some young guy, Brad, somebody who just nailed it. Uh, the whole time he was talking, I kept thinking, where have you been hiding this guy? 
this guy was perfect. He seemed to have a, a complete command of you know where we were with test kits and supplies and stuff. And then the the other the other folks I don't remember all their names, but the generals and the admirals and stuff. And I thought they did a really good job of breaking it down. You know what's where, um, and it took a while to get the distinction that sometimes they were talking about the test facility and sometimes they were talking about the physical supplies that you need to put a sample you know, in, and send it to the lab. So it looks like we were in better shape. We're in good shape in terms of test facilities and machines, and they seem to be everywhere you would need them, all over the states. And we're in less good shape, <clears throat> or at least have been, on the supplies, the you know, swabs and stuff. But it looks like, you know, if you believe the task force report, it looks like we're very, very quickly going to get a good handle on that. But the bottom line, which the president and the task force said, is that the states already have enough to do testing to get to phase one. And that seems like the minimum requirement. If you have enough to get to phase one, and that's what we're all shooting for, it's not perfect. You know, we'd all like to have way more tests. But it turns out, even if you had, um, I forget who said this, but it sounded smart, that even if you had way, way more tests, you would still be so far away from having enough tests to just test everybody that you really couldn't get there. Um, and if you did test everybody, how often do you have to retest? You know, so so somebody was, <clears throat> somebody was pointing out that you really can't get so many tests that you just like nail it down because you've tested the crap out of it. That's sort of an impractical goal. I don't know if that's true, but somebody smart said that. But rather, um, you go for whatever's the, the weakest, you know, biggest leverage, and the, the best leverage, and I guess I believe this, is testing the people who are in the same environment with people who are infected, so first responders and nursing home people, then somehow, somehow that's going to be the best targeted use of the tests. I hope that's enough. But I would say this was the best, um, I think the best task force report, and in my opinion, showed a great deal of competence. Now, my favorite part about it uh, was when, uh, I think it was CNN, uh, correspondent, asked the question of Mike Pence and said, hey, if, if you say that, that the states have all the testing that they need, why did the governor of Maryland have to go to South Korea to get to try to buy supplies? And now the first thing you need to know is that the supplies they were buying were the part that was in short, short supply. It was only the testing facilities that are quite generously everywhere and, and have lots of capacity. So the governor was talking about supplies that they got from South Korea. And, uh, and so CNN asked that question, and Pence uh, says, uh, can you put up the Maryland map? And within seconds, there's this big visual aid of all the testing centers in Maryland. And, it just, and if you weren't following along and you didn't know that the question was more about the supplies than it was the testing facilities, it, lo- it, looked, like, uh, it looked like Pence just totally dunked on her. And then he sort of changed the subject, and she, I don't, she didn't follow up. I don't know if she didn't understand that he wasn't really answering her question directly, 
But in any event, it looks like even Maryland got some supplies, so I think I think everybody's okay. So there's that. Uh, but I, I, I guess I was impressed because you don't see somebody using a PowerPoint slide deck that effectively, where somebody asks a question and you just slap this map up there and, and you're like, uh, next question, even though it didn't really answer a question. All right. Um, <clears throat> what's up with oil prices, huh? What is up with oil prices? <laughs> uh, I don't even know how to understand uh, oil prices. Obviously, it's very temporary because almost immediately the you know the supply will will change. So I would assume it'll it'll drift back up. But man, uh, what what are the odds that you're in the airline business? And fuel goes to so cheap that it would be the best time to be in the airline business, except, oops, can't be in the airline business either. Um, so here's a, uh, yeah, I don't want to ask that question. Oh, uh, so Ken Burns, PBS is releasing a whole bunch of Ken Burns films for teachers and students to um to use for the online history courses, which is like the best idea ever because this is really where online education is going. It's going to be like a Hollywood production so that when you're watching it at home, it's way better than being in a class and listening to a boring teacher. And listening or watching the Ken Burns uh, history movies are really good. I mean, that's, that's a pretty solid way to teach history, if you ask me. So I think, I think you're going to see free college. You can, there will be free college, but it will be online college. All right, so here's a question for you. I know just enough about economics to be confused about stuff. Um, why is everybody saying Kim Jong-un has some issues? Is there some news about Kim Jong-un that I'm missing? Because I just looked at the news before I turned it on. I didn't see anything about that. All right, so here's the question. If the 20% of the people who are unemployed, in rough terms, are prob- or for the most part, they're the people at the lower end of the economic spectrum, and there's still a lot of cubicle dwellers and millionaires, oh, wow, people are reporting that Kim Jong-un is actually... So that's really a thing, unless this is the greatest prank ever because you're all, re- you're all saying the same thing. All right, let me check it in real time. I literally just... Oh, whoa. In grave danger after surgery. What do we know about that? You all know more than I do about that. So there was a speculation because he wasn't in public and it's tightly controlled, so we don't know. Uh, number of so it's basically rumors, which doesn't mean it's not true. But how does anybody know? All right, so uh, he had a cane. He had a cyst removed from his ankles, and somebody says it's easy to be wrong on this one. Said, <laughs> yeah. So some expert said it's easy to be wrong on this one. Uh so I wouldn't bet on Kim Jong-un being brain dead, but we'll see. 
We'll see. Anyway, here's the thought experiment. If the people who mostly are unemployed were also the ones who, unfortunately, were the lowest end of the economic um, system, how much, how much money do we still have in the system should we get back to work in a month or so? How much money would we still have to start stimulating demand? So if you assume that the, there was 20% unemployment, so let's, let's just say that 20% of the public really is just flat broke. And they'd be lucky, they'd be lucky to get back on their feet and just sort of break even. But they're not going to be generating any kind of, you know, demand by, you know, buying a lot of extra stuff. So the, the people who lost, here's where I'm going with this. The people who lost their jobs, while it's a big, scary, horrible number and a tragedy by any description, it also is not a large part of the total amount of money in the country that drives demand. Is it? So this is sort of a statement-slash-question because I'm a little uncertain if I'm missing something big. But, you know, we talk endlessly about the, the top 1%, owning most of the, the wealth. And let's, let's say the top 20% owns 80% of the wealth. I don't know. What are, what are the exact numbers? Top 30%? Pick a number. The, the point will be the same. And the, the point is this, that at the top, the people who had all the wealth, even if their wealth is compressed by a third, I think that roughly is what will happen to me. So I think my net worth is probably down by a third, but probably not enough to radically change my, you know, my normal consumer level. You know, I'm going to get as many haircuts and, you know, probably go out to dinner the same amount. So the point is, if the people at the top, even though they they had a you know great contraction in their wealth, just like everybody else, they still have plenty left. So as soon as they can buy things. Do they not have a lot of money to go buy things? If it's true that the people at the top always had all the money anyway, uh, so here's the question: When we assume that the economy might turn into a depression, you could break that down to specific problems like credit and being able to, you know, eat, right? I mean, the thing that will be broken when we go back to, you know, when we get back, I don't think it will be just demand. Because I think demand might come back faster than you think because the people with money still have some. At least they have enough to drive, drive demand, I would think. Uh, but the big problem is that so many people are going to be behind in bills and uh, mispayments. But I think we can solve that. It seems to me that we would be able to fairly cleverly solve the credit problem, either by making exceptions or saying, hey, everybody who went through this, just push all of your bills ahead three months, you know, and we'll, if that causes some company to go bankrupt, we'll backstop them for a while. There's probably some clever ways we can work through it. But I am expecting that uh, we'll, uh, we might come out of it way better, way better than the most optimistic predictions. And I think it could be because of that, because nothing's broken. Now, here's the other thing that I think could not be modeled. So when the prediction models are figuring out 
how bad things are going to be. Here's something that can't be modeled. The effectiveness of our communications in 2020. In 2020, anybody who knows anything that's important to help on the pandemic, if, it, if it's known anywhere, it's pretty much immediately known everywhere because good ideas spread pretty quickly. And so we have a, uh, because of our good communication, we have a society that is super self-healing. So you could, you could take almost anything and throw it into this you know, big ball of civilization, and it, it could break just crazy, just break stuff, break your whole economy, destroy buildings and everything. But as long as the, the humans still could communicate, our ability to use that communication to quickly adapt and make plans and move resources and stuff is somewhat breathtaking. So I think our recovery doesn't account for how well we communicate and that it creates almost a super being with self-healing powers and how much money there's still left and the people who will drive demand like they probably usually do because the people who didn't have money weren't driving a lot of demand. All right. I tweeted a uh, an article by an MD, Peter Atia, A-T-T-I-A, if you want to look for him. Uh, he's Peter Atia, MD, on Twitter. And it was a really good article, and I'll try to capture the gist of it. And he was trying to figure out if there's some way we could tell now or ever, whether what we experienced was that the models were all wrong or that we were super effective in mitigating. Like, why is it that the models were so wrong? Because we were so good or the models were so wrong? Or is it a, you know, a little bit of both? And if so, you know, which is the dominant part? Real important to know that, right? I mean, we really, really want to know that. And he suggests that we can actually know that someday. Because when we can, uh, we can test enough, and we're not there yet, but I think we'll reasonably get there, maybe you know, two months or something, we should be able to um, figure out how many asymptomatic people there are. So once you have a good... Uh, so, wow, Kim Jong-un is brain dead, according to NBC. All right, well, we'll all check that out as soon as, as, soon as this is over. Um, I don't think anybody knows what that means, right? But I wouldn't rule out coronavirus. I wouldn't rule that out. Well, I wonder who's in charge. This could be really interesting. All right. And not in a good way. I don't think it'll be war, but it's going to be interesting times. Um, anyway, Peter Atia says that we will actually be able to test and we will actually have an answer. So isn't that interesting? Um, somebody says Katie Turr deleted her tweet. Does that mean we're not sure? CNN is... Re- I'm looking at your comments. CNN is reporting Kim Jong is in critical. All right. So I guess the thing we can know for sure is we don't know, right? Sister, a botched medical procedure, you say? <laughs> a botched... I wonder if it was botched. How botched was it? Um, anyway, so we'll, we will someday know the answer whether we overreacted because of the models or because or we were just really super effective. Um, 
Well, now I just want to go look into that because that looks like that's going to be the, the big story. So we're up to 41,000 deaths in the United States from the coronavirus. The model had been lowered to 60. I don't see how we're going to stop at 60. Do you believe that we're... So we have 41,000, and the model was lowered down to 60. Do you think we're going to go from 41,000 already, and that by the end of the year we're still going to be below 60? Or, or even at 60? Does that seem reasonable to you? Now, I get that you know, you're going to level off and stuff, but aren't we just sort of pushing those deaths into the future? I don't really get how we would expect... Like, you know, I'm no, I'm no expert uh, virology modeler, but um, <laughs> I'm, no, I'm no modeler, but it seems to me almost impossible that we wouldn't shoot past that 60,000 number because we'll be going back to work and, of course, there'll be flare-ups. I mean, I think we're actually going to hit 100, right, at our current rate. I would think that going back to work would put you over 100,000 easily. I would think. That would still make the models wrong, I think, but I think that's where it's going. All right. I said if 100,000 people die, Trump loses re-election. Well, you know, things. whenever I make a prediction about the election, you should always hear a voice in your head that says, unless something changes, and then the, then the second voice says right after that, and something will change because it always does. So any any predictions are sort of absurd because too much is going to change between now and then. But um, I believe that because people would feel so happy if it were uh, under 100,000, that that would pretty much guarantee election. If it's over 100, it's, it's going to kind of look like Trump was and the, the governors were right to you know, treat this as a serious problem. So there are lots of ways that Trump can win in this, because if it turns out to kill more people than, and I hate to put that in political terms, but if it turns out to be worse than, than the people who were not worried thought, they're going to say, oh, I guess Trump was right all along. It was pretty bad. So I think the worst, the worst it is, up to a point, actually helps him. Now, let me put numbers on this. If I had to say... Let's say it. Let's say it capped at a uh, hundred and fifty thousand, just for a conversation. That's not a prediction, but it, let's say at the end of the year there were, or by election day there were one hundred and fifty thousand dead. One of the things that that would tell you is that it was just as bad as you thought, because we wouldn't even be done. That that would tell you that by the end of the year maybe it's at two hundred or something. So I think. Trump would actually look better even if death count is higher up to a point because then people would say, okay, he's, he, he was you know, being pretty tough on this. Yeah, he seemed a little too optimistic in the, at first, but you know, now we know that it wasn't a hoax. Now, what, what if it goes the other way? What if this 41,000 just like you know, we're, we're so good at it, it just goes and stops below 60,000. 
Yeah, we hope it does. What if it does? Will that will people say, "Yay, President Trump, you really nailed it. You did the best that you could possibly do." Probably not. Cuz even if we've got these, you know, other tests to find out, you know, did the mitigation work or were the models wrong or was it both? Even with that, if there's a small number who are dead, people are going to say it was all a hoax and you closed the economy for nothing, even though that doesn't make sense because we don't know what would have happened if we hadn't done it. Could go either way. All right, I think we can uh, go check on uh, Kim Jong-un. Um, I would... I would... You know, I'll tell you, I... <laughs> Somebody's asking me if I'm stoned. Uh, No, not at the moment, as a matter of fact. Um, I'm tired, but I'm not stoned. Uh, I've got a feeling Joe Biden might have an announcement this week. I would say, you know, every day that goes by that you don't see him in public makes it more of a certainty that, that he's being talked out of the race. What we don't know is if there's been any decision about who would replace him or even how they would handle that. I mean, you know, there was a report that Biden was uh, starting to pick his cabinet picks. No, not his cabinet. He was, there was a report that Biden was trying to pick his transition team for when he won. And I thought to myself, I don't think that's happening. <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think Joe Biden is picking a transition team for when he wins. I don't think that's happening. Maybe, but I don't think so. All right, well, I will see you in the morning. Let's go check the news and see what's what.